Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Friday night. I'm so glad you're here tonight. Um, there is a case that is almost as long as my career. Uh, 35 years is the case. 36 years is my TV career. So safe to say that I have been covering it uh, from kind of day one-ish. It's the Menendez brothers. And I know you've probably heard a few things about the Menendez brothers and this and that, and should they get out? Well, tonight you really need to pay attention. Because there is a letter that you should read because it was written eight months before Lyle and Eric killed their parents. They always said on the stand, we did it because dad was sexually abusing us and said eventually he'd kill us if we ever said anything. We were terrified this was self-defense. And the country laughed. Seriously, the country laughed. We are a very different country today. We don't laugh at stuff like that anymore. It would not be a national joke if these two young men got up on the stand and said the things they said with other witnesses who corroborated it. But now there's something that you can't laugh at. It's a letter eight months before the murders, talking about the abuse that their dad meted out on them. Does this mean they're going to get a new trial? And if so, does it mean they walk? Because they've already served more than the sentence they might get, given this new evidence. Their attorney, Mark Garagos, is on with me tonight. Also, uh, there's nothing more dramatic in a courtroom, I swear to you, there is nothing more dramatic than the moment that jury hands the verdict to whomever gives it to the judge. Sometimes it's bailiff, court officer, or sometimes the juror reads it. When they read that verdict, you can hear, literally, you can hear a pin drop. And the seconds after that verdict, if the defendant is not expecting to hear what they're going to hear, that is the kind of drama in this picture right now. You see that woman with her head? The charge of conspiracy to commit murder. She just heard guilty. Now her lawyer's got his hand on her back because he knows. And the rest of the court can hear her sobbing. Cameras can't pick it up, but the court heard it. That's Michelle Traconis. She just heard the jury say you're guilty of conspiring to murder your lover's wife, who we never found. And it means she's going to prison probably for the rest of her life. That lawyer's going to join me. We are just a couple of months away from the five-year anniversary of Jennifer Dulos's murder. It's a really crazy case. There's still one more person who needs to be tried for it. I'll tell you all about that in a moment. Uh, like I said, her, uh, Traconis's lawyer is going to be on with me. And then um, justice delayed. Is it justice denied? Or is it justice that's cautiously meted out so it's done right? Depends on who you ask because that fella marched into court this week we all thought we might hear, uh, hear a trial date announced for Brian Koberger in the Idaho student murders. And we did not. We heard a window, and it is a long time away, more than a year, at the very earliest, about a year. 
maybe closer to like summer of 2025. And that is brutal for the families who are waiting for justice. Please don't forget, there is a gag order in this case, which means I don't get to hear things and I don't get to tell you things. and They don't get to hear things. So they sit there in a cocoon, wondering what the hell happened to their kids. They're pushing back on this now. And Steve Gonzalez, Kaylee Gonzalez's dad, is going to join me tonight about a seething statement he just released today regarding this timeline on justice. All of that coming up just a moment. First, Lyle and Mayor Eric Menendez. They, these guys have been in our collective consciousness for decades and decades. You can date yourself, actually, by whether you watch their story unfold in real time or whether you learned about it from your parents. Or maybe you learned about it from a true crime doc. But if you were around in the summer of 1989, Lyle Menendez, 21 years old, and his little brother Eric, 18 years old, uh, they killed their parents with shotguns. Their father, Jose, was shot six times. Their mother, Kitty, was shot 10 times. All this happened in the den of their very expensive Beverly Hills mansion. The brothers fessed up to doing it eventually. They admitted they did it. But the question of why, that dominated their two murder trials in the 90s. And let me tell you, the entire country was transfixed. The first trial was on television every day. And this was pre-streaming. It was before OJ. It was way before Casey Anthony. And it was a long time before podcasts were a thing. Uh, Lyle and Eric claimed self-defense. They, they told stories on the stand that were just riveting about sexual abuse at the hands of their father. But frankly, if you lived through this, their story seemed absurd. And those guys were a national joke. The consensus being that they were just lying through their crocodile tears. It was such a joke. Here's how Saturday Night Live depicted the case. Let me ask you once again. Is it your testimony that you and your brother Eric, in fact, had nothing to do with the murder of your parents, Jose and Kitty Menendez? That's correct. Then can you tell the court who did murder your parents? Our other two brothers, Danny Menendez and Jose Menendez, Jr. There was a lot of crying on the stand in the real testimony. Um, but the public seemed wholly on the side of the prosecutors who said that the brothers just did it for money. Just greed. Lyle and Eric were convicted, and they each got two life sentences, no parole. And they are still in prison as we speak today. Lyle is now 56, and Eric is 53. But there is a new development in this three decades old case. A letter. Um, a letter that was never introduced back then. In fact, it only surfaced a couple of years ago. It is written in Eric's handwriting. It's written to his cousin, Andy Cano. And it starts normally enough, kind of like, how are you doing? And making some Christmas plans and stuff like that. But then Eric writes this. And frankly, it puts the testimony that we all watched in a whole new light. Let me read it for you. It says, I've been trying to avoid dad. It's still happening, Andy, but it's worse for me now. I can't explain it. He is so overweight that I can't stand to see him. I never know when it's going to happen, and it's driving me crazy. Every night, I stay up thinking he might come in. I need to put it out of my mind. I know what you said before, but I'm afraid. You just don't know Dad like I do. He's crazy. 
He warned me a hundred times about telling anyone, especially Lyle. Am I a serious wimpus? I don't know I'll make it through this. I can handle it, Andy. I need to stop thinking about it. Eight months. Eight months before the murder, that was written. Eric, the younger brother, telling his cousin, apparently not for the first time either, about his fear of his father and what happens to him in the family home. And we cannot ask Andy Cano about the letter because he passed away in 2003. But Andy Cano did testify at the time, saying that under oath, he had known for years that Eric's father had been touching him inappropriately. Is it possible that this letter could win Eric and Lyle Menendez new trials? Eric wrote it eight months before the murders. And it seemingly corroborates what those boys said on the stand, that they killed their parents after years of sex abuse and fear that their father might kill them. Well, now we know that this letter was written so far before the killings, long before the testimony in open court was universally ridiculed. It really kind of now seems to put that testimony and all the stuff we watched in a whole new light. Take a look. What do you believe was the originating cause of you and your brother ultimately winding up shooting your parents? Um, me telling. You telling what? Me telling Lyle that, uh... You telling Lyle what? (laughs) Was it you telling Lyle about something that was happening? My dad. Can I ask a leading question? If you don't uh, ask my dad. Wait one second, Mr. Hernandez. Okay, let me ask. No, no, he was in the process of answering, so there's no need to ask him. Can you answer the question? Yes. Okay, is you telling Lyle what? My dad had been molesting me. And did you want something from your brother? Is that why you told him? I just wanted to stop. Were you seeking help from your brother? Yes. We would be in the bathroom, and uh, um, it would he would put me on my knees, and he would guide me all my movements, and I would um, uh, have oral sex with him. Do you want to do this? At some point, did he do some other things to you? Attorneys for Lyle and Eric Menendez want a new trial for manslaughter, not murder. And a manslaughter sentence could almost certainly mean that Lyle and Eric would be free men today with the time already served. 
The investigative program 48 Hours spoke to Lyle Menendez on the phone as part of a special on the case that streams this weekend. It covers Eric's powerful letter and another piece of new evidence, too. As you sit there in prison, there is some news now that could really impact you and your brother's case, right? Yes, that's pretty just sort of shocking. Former Menudo singer Roy Rossello claims he was drugged and raped by Jose Menendez in the mid-80s. Menudo had just signed with RCA Records, where Menendez was a top executive. We now have evidence that makes absolutely clear that those boys were molested. And if those boys were molested, it would have been manslaughter, and they would be out. The judge in this case, if he finds that the new evidence is credible and the conviction should be vacated, do you think the DA's office would seek a new trial? I think they would spend a lot of time thinking about it. 34 years of incarceration. You wonder when will there be a fair review of this? So maybe now. My hope in the case is that they'll finally walk out of prison. That last person you saw was Cliff Gardner, one of the Menendez brothers' attorneys, and another attorney of the brothers is Mark Garagos, who's here with me live now. Mark, it's great to have you on the program. I can't tell you how different I feel reading that letter, knowing it's eight months before the killings, and then seeing that testimony. I feel sick to my stomach that I felt the way I felt three decades ago. Am I the only one? No, you're not, and it's an amazing thing that has happened, the shift that has happened. Can you imagine in a, I mean, it's hard, Ashley, we both remember kind of going through this you know, and 30 some odd years ago and the ridicule that you showed, whether it was Saturday Night Live, which is usually a pretty good reflection or um, kind of a real-time first-row seat of what's going on in the culture. And can you imagine them ever doing that if these were the Menendez sisters I, I, or if these were women and that kind of ridicule, it, it wouldn't last 35 seconds. They'd be canceled. And so we're in an era, and I've told you this maybe privately before, Ashley, during almost that exact time period when they were being tried, I, as a much younger lawyer, was trying a case with a woman who had uh, was charged with murder of her husband. And we ended up getting a manslaughter because we used the battered women's syndrome. You could do that then. Just then, it was just starting to become something that was known for women, let alone, but you would never have expected uh, that uh, that would be something that was that's, generally viewed see, that's as, it. as understandable. There goes, that's it. Back back in the day, uh, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to have lived through this in, in a journalism career. Nobody believed that parents really did this to their kids, and certainly nobody believed that fathers did it to their sons, maybe to a daughter, but not to, to a son. But when you look at this testimony now, it is absolutely impossible to see this as being acting. Meryl Streep couldn't pull this off, you know, now that we know. We are a different society and now. Then, so uh, do you think a DA, if you get a different yeah. trial, would, would a DA even bother to, to retry this, now knowing what the jury will be like, what, what the jury of their peers believes uh, when it comes to, to sex abuse and certainly parental sex abuse? Well, it's interesting because the, in that package you just ran, the woman who you, was being interviewed was the former district attorney of L.A. County, which was Jackie Lacey. And Jackie Lacey 
said they would think long and hard. I think that the DA's office right now is thinking long and hard. Um, we've been presenting evidence to them, something that some most people don't know. I, I haven't mentioned this before. We've actually done a what's called a conditional examination with the DA present of um, uh, one of the family members who is very supportive uh, of a resentencing or a uh, the habeas being granted. So the victims are solidly, for almost uniformly, almost uniformly supportive of uh, them being out of custody. I, and so when you talk about the pendulum shift or the pendulum swing in the culture and you combine it with the family, both sides, Kitty and Jose's, who are supportive of either a new trial or their release, I think it's time. Let me ask you this. Um, the letter was written eight months before the killing. Why wasn't it brought up at trial? Because this is a letter written by the little brother, right? So it's a letter written by Eric. And the killing, uh, you know, for all intents, was, was orchestrated by the big brother, Lyle, which would say eight months before the killing, the little brother's not going to try to put together evidence for, for a murder that's being orchestrated by the bigger brother. I mean, it just sort of flies in the face of logic. Why did this? Why was this letter not read well, to those Cl jurors? Well, Cliff uh, Gardner, who is the, to, to my mind, one of the top three appellate lawyers in California and maybe the nation, Cliff, as uh, you mentioned, in also in your package here, talked about the fact that there was kind of a tortured history to this letter. The letter was written to Andy. Um, Andy ended up dying tra tragically years ago. The letter was in his effects. It was not discovered until well after the trial, well after the appeals, well after the Ninth Circuit argument, I think more than a decade after the Ninth Circuit argument. So it was not as if this was something that they wrote or that they fabricated and decided, hey, we'll wait a couple of decades and then we'll bring this up. It was something sure, that was yeah. in Andy's effects after he passed away. It's it's shocking that, that, that Andy didn't think in real time, geez, I've got this letter that would prove exactly what they're saying on the stand. Mark, you and I are not finished this conversation, and I'm, you know I've got my, my request in to have a face-to-face -face with those clients, uh, with the Menendez brothers, about this. Uh, let's talk about it again. Thank you, Ashley. Always good to see you. Have a great weekend. Always good to see you, too. Mark Garagos, uh, host of the Reasonable Doubt podcast with Adam Carolla. Uh, friend of the show as well. So still to come, there is nothing more dramatic in a murder trial than when the verdict is read in court, except for the moment hmm, when that verdict is not at all what the defendant was expecting. That there is Michelle Traconis dropping her head onto defense table after hearing guilty ringing out in her Connecticut murder trial. It is a verdict that will likely see her die in prison for conspiring to murder her lover's wife. Even though that wife has never been found man seated beside her right there and who tried to defend her is with me next. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. 
Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. It's going to mark the five-year point since Jennifer Dulos vanished. She had just dropped uh, the five kids off at school. She drove her SUV back into her garage, and that was the last anyone ever saw her. All signs pointed to her husband, Fotis Dulos. He was having an affair, they were divorcing, but it's believed that he murdered Jennifer, dismembered her body, and then dumped the evidence in dozens of trash bins all along a busy street in Hartford, Connecticut, late at night. He was arrested, but he killed himself before he could face trial. And five years is a very long time for Jennifer's loved ones to wait for justice, but today, they got it. In Stamford, Connecticut, in a courtroom. And although it was not Fotis Dulos sitting there stunned as the guilty verdict rang out, it was his girlfriend, Michelle Traconis, who was along for the ride, that late night ride where they discarded Jennifer's bloody things in all those trash bins. Guilty of conspiring to murder Jennifer. Guilty of tampering with evidence. Guilty of hindering prosecution. I'm going to be honest with you, there was really not a lot of direct evidence tying Michelle to Jennifer's murder, the actual murder. But there was a lot of circumstantial evidence and very suspicious behavior after the victim vanished. Michelle Traconis had claimed to investigators that Fotis, curiously, had asked her to bring a whole bunch of cleaning supplies to one of his multi-million dollar mansions, which at the time was vacant, being renovated. She says that the two of them, Fotis Dulos, who's a millionaire developer, and her, a socialite girlfriend, spent hours and hours cleaning an empty mansion Think about this. Cleaning. That is the stuff they have lots and lots of staff members to do. But they said they didn't. There was also the uh, business of Fotis' alibi. The prosecutors argued that the girlfriend, Michelle, had to have known about the murder plot beforehand because of what she did with her lover's telephone. On the morning that Jennifer disappeared, Fotis had left his phone at his home in Farmington, Connecticut, about 70 miles away from the murder scene. And later, when that phone rang... Conveniently, Michelle Traconis answered it. The presumption here to make it look like Fotis was standing right there beside her in their home, answering his phone when he was actually 70 miles away, murdering his wife. And then there is the disposal of Jennifer's bloody clothes and the evidence of her murder. Traconis was along for the ride with Fotis late at night, Hartford, Connecticut, where they stopped at garbage can after garbage can after garbage can, dumping the bloody evidence. Look at this went on and on. She said they were just getting coffee in that city late at night, 10 miles away. But surveillance cameras just caught all this stuff, right? This is just one bit. It's just, the evidence is so sad. There's her bra just covered, soaked in blood. Um, Investigators managed to recover a lot of the bags that were dumped. They contained uh, that bloody clothing you're looking at, zip ties and other things with Jennifer's DNA on them. Some of the things had Fotis' DNA on them. Um, And some of the things in the garbage cans had Traconis' DNA, Michelle. Uh, She is now set to be sentenced on May 31st, and she faces up to 50 years, which is life, you know. Not everybody thought she was going to get convicted. Michelle herself dropped her head and was weeping audibly right after the verdict was read. And earlier today, I had a chance to speak with her attorney, John Schoenhorn, and I asked him about that, that moment. John, were you surprised by the verdict Well, I was both surprised and extremely disappointed. I think that's a 
an understatement, but yes. And what about Michelle? Was she expecting to hear not guilty today? I think that she was hoping for not guilty. She's been very stressed, very upset um, for the last couple of days. The question that the jurors had asked yesterday wasn't as favorable in my mind as the question the day before. So we thought that they were leaning at least in the direction of one of the tampering with evidence charges. But I was personally shocked by the finding of a conspiracy to commit murder. I, I still firmly believe that there's absolutely no evidence to support the fact that she knew in advance what Fotis uh, Dulos was up to and what he was planning in advance. That's my, my view, so I am shocked. Why do you think the jury voted guilty to conspiracy? Well, in my mind, this is all somewhat of the, the way I tried to portray this as hindsight bias, where they took what happened later and just assumed, well, if she was helping him in any way, she must have known in advance what he was doing or what he had planned. And I just didn't think there was any evidence in the record to show or to even suggest that she knew in advance what he was planning. Do you think that the the jury uh, heard information about Michelle and Fotis's lawyer, Kent Mawinney, um, and Fotis creating all of this evidence behind the scenes, the, the alibi uh, notes and the phone call um, at Fotis's house and thought, well, that sounds like a conspiracy? I think it all comes down to uh, the conclusion that she must have made false statements during the interrogations. And again, that's two weeks later, and she still denied any knowledge throughout all three of those interrogations from June 2nd, June 6th, and August 13th, knowing what he had planned. They tried every trick in the book to, in terms of interrogation techniques, lying to her, uh, cutting her off, telling her things that her, her memory was false, all the things that I thought the jury, hope, I hoped the jury would understand, playing on her language uh, deficiencies, it apparently did not. We were just looking uh, a moment ago at the video, um, the moment the verdict was read, and you know Michelle Traconis's head was on the, the defense table. Um, she was openly weeping, people heard that in court. And I wondered what that was like for you sitting beside her and what conversation you had um, after that moment. Well, it, the moment, I have to say, was one of the worst moments that, you know, not only is it a worst uh, moment for any lawyer who does this kind of work, but I would say in my career it was one of the worst. She was completely, like, tightened up and sobbing. Even before she put her head down while still standing, I had to hold her up. So, um, and she was leaning against me, and I think that she might have fallen down into the chair if I hadn't done that. The, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not giving up here. Um, I think there were a number of um, what I would say are incorrect rulings, at least in my opinion, that would be grounds for an appeal. I plan on immediately going to work on 
preparing a motion for new trial, listing some of those issues. I'm going to also file a motion for acquittal, notwithstanding the verdict, and eventually start working on an appeal. Coming up, the ups and downs of having a serial killer for a pen pal, and not just any serial killer, the happy face killer. His name is Keith Jesperson, and at first his letters happily described his comfy life behind bars, but now they've taken a darker turn. I'm going to read them to you next. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Yesterday, I shared a letter with you that I recently got from a serial killer who is serving life in prison. Uh, he's the happy face killer, real name Keith Jesperson. Uh, he's jailed in Oregon State. And I shared the first letter with you, uh, but I haven't shared the second one yet. And his first letter was actually pretty happy. He was outlining all the cushy things um, in prison. But then his next letter, not so much. I'm going to get to what he said to me in just a moment. Uh, but Jesperson was convicted of eight murders. Uh, he's claimed a whole lot more than that, though, and he's serving multiple life sentences. He has also written to the accused Long Island serial killer, Rex Huerman, and he's been exchanging a lot of letters with my colleague, uh, Laura Engel. Even one kind of creepy letter on Valentine's Day. Here's Laura with that. Ashley, I've received eight letters in all from Keith Jesperson, five in December, and then another three last week. You know, this all started after I reached out to him through podcaster Keith Rovere, who hosts the Lighter Side of Serial Killer show. He communicates with Jesperson on a regular basis. And once he put me in contact with Jesperson, I received those first five letters, which described his prison life and conditions and about his push to get Rex Hewerman to come clean if he is, in fact, the Gilgo Beach serial killer. Now, these new letters that came with this month with Valentine's Day messages, both on the outside of the envelopes and on the inside, some of the pages were mostly about how he wants me to get back on his call list at the Oregon State Penitentiary so we can have another phone conversation. We talked in January. One page reads, seems like I'm in the news a lot these days. Then he goes on telling me, if you have any questions, I can answer them by mail. Send them. You know, when we talked last month, I mentioned that I would sign up again for his phone system, and I had asked him if he is allowed visitors. So he continued in his letter, looking forward to meeting you at visiting. Just remember, I am 68 and a little overweight. Okay, a lot. Prison food. Not looking for a wife, so don't ask. Ha ha. Later, Keith. Okay, I've since registered a phone number with the Oregon State Penitentiary, so I will let you know if we have another call and when that happens. Ashley? And I will call you. Um, most of what Jesperson has written to me about um, has to do with his confinement, and he makes it actually sound pretty good. He's got putt-putt golf, he's got video games, soda machines, billiards. He is especially proud of how he's doing at Xbox. This is what he wrote. Um, my celly in A Block is Xbox 100%. I used to play a game called Jewel Master until I broke it, reaching level 135 in four hours, scoring 10,789 jewels for 1,251,500 points. The knob broke and the game was over. 
May 1st, 2019. Sounds pretty friendly, right? But the second letter took a turn. I asked him for a face-to-face interview, just like I did with Drew Peterson, and he shut me down cold. (laughs) Instead, he told me where I can listen to an old interview, and then he closed the letter uh, with this. Uh, Because I wrote to Rex Heuerman to let him know his options, everyone wants to stop me, including you. The press are given tours of this prison several times a year upon request. I'm not a story. I'm old news. If I could vote, I'd vote for Trump. However, most inmates benefit from Democrats in office. Sent my $3,200 stimulus money to my daughter in Spokane. They need it more with how Biden is running this country. There is no story here. Sincerely, Keith. I'm going to dig into that stimulus money thing. Um, In a total coincidence, though, last week I was in the Indiana prison where Drew Peterson is housed, and I asked him what he would do if he had his right to vote reinstated. And he seems to have something in common with the happy face killer. You've got to be interested when you watch the news. Who would you vote for if you had an opportunity? I like Donald Trump. Tell me what you like. He's an obnoxious guy. He's just... He reminds me a lot of me. He just does his thing. And I think when he was president last time, he did a good job. So, and I don't really know Joe Biden to, to take apart his life. We're going to let you know if the happy face killer uh, changes his mind about that uh, interview and about that stimulus money. Coming up, a rush to judgment is bad, right? On the other hand, justice delayed is justice denied. And somewhere in between is the sweet spot. Take your time, but get it right. It is a hard spot to hit, especially when the death penalty is looming over the whole thing. After the break, the slow and grinding wheels of justice in the Idaho quadruple murder case and how a grief-stricken father is responding to what the judge said this week. Kaylee Gonzalez's dad is next. I came from a low-income family that was that was struggling. You see how hard life can get. GC became a part of my life because I don't want my family to fall back into that. I never thought education would take me this far. I'm still young. I still have a lot to do in my life and just want to get things done the way I want with a good education under me. I'm Stacy, and Grand Canyon University helped me find my purpose. She's amazing. Donate to help rescue an innocent preborn child by scanning the QR code on your screen. Just use your phone's camera to scan the QR code and save a life today. They've been making the long, cold trip to the Latah County Courthouse and back for more than a year now. And in Idaho, cold means cold. Those highways can be long and dark and very lonely. But hearing after hearing, they come waiting to find out what the next step is in finding justice for their kids. I'm talking about the families of those four University of Idaho kids who were butchered in their beds by a madman back in October of 2022. All those families want is answers and justice, but for 16 months, both of those things have been in very short supply. Just this week, they thought that maybe the judge would set a trial date, an actual one, for Brian Koberger, the man accused of the heinous murders, but they were wrong. Because once again, that was put off. And it looks like the very earliest that could happen is a full year from now. Maybe even as far out as summer 2025. 
The defense has made it crystal clear they are in no hurry. Here is what uh, Attorney Jay Logsdon told the court last month. Trial won't put an end to this case. This case will go on for 28 years if they do actually achieve a conviction. What we're trying to do is make sure that the things that occur in this case are done correctly. And if you want to talk about how long things are going to take, get some stuff wrong and then see how long it all takes. All right, it's true. It is a death penalty case and every I needs dotting and every T needs crossing. But the families are waiting in the wings. I'll remind you, under a gag order that keeps them in the pitch dark. And now Kaylee Gonzalez and Zano Kernodal's parents are pushing back. Today they released a statement, which reads in part, We just want justice for our loved ones. We want communication. We want efficiency in prosecution. We want a court that will make timely decisions, and we want a fair trial. The problem is that you can't control what you can't control. A jury will hear the evidence and return a verdict. But we need to get there sooner rather than later. We want to start healing. We do. We want to find justice and try to move on from this horrible tragedy. So please, please start making some decisions. Get to work and quit playing the delay game. I am now joined live by Kaylee Gonzalez's dad, Steve Gonzalez. Steve, thank you for joining me tonight, um, especially after putting out that really difficult statement today. In court on Wednesday, you and your wife, Christy, were visibly upset. That must have been a really tough hearing to come out of. Yeah, um, we're getting a little bit used to uh, the delays and the tactics that are being used. Um, So we're trying to um, understand that we don't, um, you don't get justice in one day. You You got a process to go through. It's hard, though, right, finding that sweet spot. This is a death penalty case. You want to get it right. You definitely don't want something um, to be overturned on appeal because they hurried this thing through. Uh, But from your perspective, you you don't know anything. I mean, this is different because there's this gag order. Is that part of the biggest issue, is that you're just being kept so much in the dark for so long? Well, I understand that there's a massive amount of evidence against this guy and... uh... I feel like the rules are changing. Um, there was a time where an eyewitness was the best kind of evidence you could have. Nowadays, uh, a cell phone and um, a car and surveillance, you know, that's not memory. That's actual physical proof that an individual is at the crime scene during the time. And we're getting to that point where, you know, you got a defense that's overwhelmed with this was so much evidence that they're having a hard time defending it. And there's never going to be enough time for them. There's never going to be enough time for them to be, be prepared for the, uh, the amount of evidence that they've been, uh, you know, dropped on them. I mean, terabytes of data has been dropped on their head. The whole world responded to this case and uh, they all came forward. And I think, I think they're uh, going to be overwhelmed with the amount of data that evidence that they have against their client. And it could take them lifetimes to prepare for this. Sure. Yeah. And so what usually happens, and of course, this is a road you've never tread before. Um, You're having to learn it and there's no guidebook. But what usually happens uh, as you get deep into this process, especially in a death penalty case, is eventually prosecutors consider talking to families about a deal. 
Um, they typically don't do a deal before they get the family's, um, you know, feelings and thoughts and weigh how families feel. Has there been any effort at this point for prosecutors to say, look, we could put them away tomorrow. We could end all of this. Um, the death penalty is what's going to take this time. Has there been any inkling towards the potential of maybe striking a deal, taking death off the table for a conviction? You know what? Idaho is still small. And uh, when you uh, hurt our, our, our family, when you kill our children, it still matters. And uh, all the way to Brad Little, we've, we've, we've talked with people that actually have stepped up and said, hey, we are going to make sure that this individual, this individual is held to the highest Supreme Court level that we possibly can. So um, there probably is those thoughts, but um, nobody's around to even hear them because they know I'm not going to listen to that. I'm not here to uh, compromise on my daughter's name. We are going to go for the ultimate level of accountability. I mean, we're talking about people that were in their bed and were, if we believe the affidavit, this individual looked at somebody and said, I'm here to help you. If that's not cruel, if that's not disgusting, when that person could have turned around and left the crime scene, but he said, I'm here to help you and chased that person down. There's got to be a line that we write as society and say, no more. No more. We are going to stand our ground. In Idaho, we, have st- we are standing our ground on this case, and uh, we're going to hold this guy I can understand that. to the highest. I can understand it. I can understand how, how you feel uh, a deal would, would not be an option for you. I have about 10 seconds left, but I do have to ask, has anybody even mentioned it to you? No. No, I don't think that uh, that would be a conversation that they would even try with me. Uh, Steve, you know, we keep meeting under these circumstances. I am hoping for the best for you and your family. You deserve justice. Um, you deserve to have this nightmare behind you. And there's really never closure, but you deserve whatever closure you can get. Thank you for speaking uh, tonight. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your coverage. Um, I really appreciate it. Oh, God, those girls are so beautiful. Steve Gonzalez joining me live tonight. We'll continue to cover this story. Coming up, it is March 1st, and that date might not mean a lot to you unless you're really a true crime buff. But you're going to have to think way, way back, almost a century, to figure out what case captivated this country on this date that may just be the first true crime sensation America's ever seen. I've got it for you next. It may have escaped your notice, but today is a big anniversary in the true crime world. On March 1st, way back in 1932, America had its first OG true crime story, and the headlines exploded onto the newspapers everywhere. Charles Lindbergh's baby had been kidnapped. You'll remember Lindbergh. He was the transatlantic pilot. He was one of the most famous people in the entire world. But 92 years ago today, Somebody broke into the Lindbergh family home in New Jersey and grabbed their baby boy, little baby Charles Jr. He was in his crib. The Lindberghs uh, paid $50,000 in ransom, but that little baby never made it home. 
and his little toddler body was found 10 weeks later in the woods off of a New Jersey road. Two years after that, Bruno Hoppman was arrested. He was charged, he was convicted, and he was executed for the crime. And they used an electric chair to do it. And there's some thought out there that they might have had the wrong guy. But that's for a whole other night. Hey, uh, thank you so much for being with me uh, throughout this week. It's been a busy week for sure. I'm back here Monday night. I hope you have yourself a really restful weekend. In the meantime, if you're still up for it, I encourage you to keep watching because Cuomo is coming up next. All right, everybody. Happy Friday. I'm Chris Cuomo. Uh, We start with some very troubling news. Another gruesome crime that may be traced back to the border issue. A woman's head and other body parts were found scattered yesterday in a New York park. When I say New York park, really on Long Island, which is not too far from where I am right now. Okay, this wasn't some inner city crime making it worse. The Central American crime.